Okay, turn with me to Matthew 12. Last week we began looking at this passage at the beginning of the chapter in which Jesus violates the Pharisees' traditions, their rabbinic traditions uh, regarding the Sabbath, the keeping of the Sabbath. And uh, we went through many of the requirements that Jews were supposed to keep as they, uh, on the Sabbath day, and what we came up to conclude was that keeping the Sabbath was really a pain in the neck. Um, uh, it was impossible to rest because you were so busy trying to figure out what you were allowed to do or forbidden from doing. And uh, so they were, they were weary and heavy laden. And uh, so they're under this incredible burden. And so when Jesus comes along and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest, <clears throat> they... They were looking to hear that kind of a message. And uh, he paid absolutely no attention to all that garbage. And it infuriated the religious leaders. And it became the final act that crystallized their rejection against him. And there in verse 1, it says, at that time, and we talked about that this is the <clears throat> Greek word, which refers to a season or a period of time. So it was during the period of time that he was conducting his Galilean ministry. And it says that he went, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh, so what's the first problem here? Uh, it is that according to the rabbinical law, Jesus shouldn't be traveling someplace on the Sabbath. Uh, according to them, he couldn't go more than 3,000 feet from his home. Uh, but he and his disciples are just moving along, walking down through the grain fields, through the, between the rows of grain, and uh, God's law didn't say that they couldn't do that, but the rabbinical law did. And so they were supposedly in violation of the Sabbath because they were traveling somewhere. And obviously the grain was close to being ripe for harvesting because it says his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And God had made a wonderful provision for the, to allow them to do that back in Deuteronomy 23. Uh, Verse 25 says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So they would, people in biblical times were traveling through the grain fields. They would pluck the head of the ripe wheat or barley, roll it in their hands to separate the kernel from the outer shell or, or chaff, and then eat the wheat or barley kernels. And that was God's provision for food for travelers back there in Deuteronomy 23. And so the disciples had the right to do that under the Mosaic law. They were not in violation of the word of God at all. Uh, now back in Exodus 34, the Mosaic law forbade reaping on the Sabbath, uh, even during plowing time and harvest season. And the scribes and the Pharisees had taken this concept of not reaping on the Sabbath and had redefined it down to the point that, according to them, if you rubbed grain between your hands, that was threshing. If you threw away the chaff so you could eat the grain, that was winnowing. And so you couldn't even pull a handful of grain off of its stalk. And so this became the incident that triggered their fury against Jesus because it occurred on the Sabbath. And so then they indicted him. We saw this in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what it's not lawful to do on a Sabbath. 
Uh, these guys are hiding out behind the trees at the edge of the grain field, and, uh, and they're watching for something to accuse him about. And they say it, they, and they say, look, your disciples are not obeying the law. And uh, it's hair-splitting legalism that served no purpose. And uh, so they buried God's law deeply under a pile of legislative tradition that's unbearable. So they indicted Jesus and his disciples for disobeying their distorted man-made traditions that perverted God's intention in giving the Sabbath as a day of rest. And so from there, we turn to the Lord's instruction to them in verses 3 to 8. It says, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus' words are filled with biting sarcasm and as he asks him these questions. And he picks out David, this account of David that the, uh, was directly from Scripture. And the Pharisees considered themselves to be experts and custodians of the law and the Scripture. And so he says, haven't you read this in the Scripture? Haven't you read the law? Don't you know what it means? And, of course, the implication is that they don't have any idea at all what it means. And Jesus instructs them, and he uses these three biblical texts or incidents or principles to show the true meaning of the Sabbath. And the first principle, he says, is that the Sabbath does not restrict deeds of necessity. Uh, he picks out David because David's their hero. He's the supreme hero of Judaism. Their greatest king, poet, warrior. They loved and honored David more so than even their own patriarchs. And so David's it. And, and Jesus says, haven't you read what David did? And he reminds them of this story of how David and his companions are fleeing from Saul. And uh, they come to the land of Nob, just north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was. He didn't have any food. And he and his men were really hungry. So he goes in and he talks to Abimelech, who's ministering in the place of Abiathar, the high priest. And he tells him he's hungry. And, and Abiathar, I mean, uh, Abimelech gives him and his men the consecrated bread from the ta off the table in the tabernacle. Uh, this bread was the representation of God's perpetual relationship with his people. It was to be eaten only by the priest. It was sacred. It was consecrated. It was never to touch the lips of a common person, even someone like David, because he wasn't a priest. Uh, but David ate it. And the question is, how come God let him get away with this? Why didn't God discipline Ahimelech and uh, David? Because God never invented any law that was intended to overrule human need. Uh, ceremony takes a back seat to the meeting of need. And God will violate a ceremonial law if he has to in order to meet a need because God is all about loving men and meeting their needs. But the Pharisees didn't understand that. Uh, and then Jesus, they didn't understand that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Sabbath is given for the benefit of man so that he could rest and have his needs met, not so that man could be tied up with all kinds of nitpicky rules for keeping the Sabbath holy. Second, Jesus says that Sabbath doesn't 
restricts service to God. He says, or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? How do they do that? Uh, because all the various functions that the priest had to do on the Sabbath violated the requirements of rest on that day. They had to work in order to fulfill the requirements of their service to God, doing all of the sacrifices and all the rest. And the point is God doesn't make rules that force themselves to be applied above that which is a higher priority, which is serving God. Uh, look at verse 6. He says, Then he says a statement that had to have knocked him over. He says, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Uh, now, unless you were a Jew alive at that time, you would never understand what that meant to them. Uh, the temple was the greatest symbol and emblem of Judaism, and Jesus was saying, I'm greater than the temple. Uh, he's saying, if David could eat the consecrated bread that was in the tabernacle, because ceremony doesn't overrule meeting needs, and if the priests can violate the Sabbath laws in the temple in order to do service to God, then I'm allowed to do it as well, because I'm greater than the temple. And that statement had to have made them boiling angry because even if they didn't fully comprehend the meaning of that statement, in their minds there was nothing on earth greater than the temple. In their minds, the only thing greater than the temple was who? God. And now here's this guy, Jesus, making a claim to be God. Uh, it's a claim to deity. There's a third illustration he gives them. It's found verses 7 and 8, and it's that the Sabbath does not restrict acts of mercy. He, he says, you guys are condemning these disciples. They're innocent. They're guiltless. You wouldn't have done that if you truly understood what God really wanted, if you knew that he wants mercy, not rituals like sacrifices. Even under the Old Covenant, Sabbath observance was not a substitute for heart righteousness and compassion that should characterize God's faithful children. What God really wants is a merciful heart. God is merciful. He commands his people to be merciful. He's looking for obedient hearts. The Pharisees were a million miles from that. He wanted mercy. They didn't have a clue. So here the disciples are walking along, serving the Lord, preaching the kingdom, reaching people. They had to eat as they traveled, and their needs had to be met. God wants to be merciful to them. And then he says this, and if they hadn't already popped a blood vessel in their brains, they would now. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I have authority over the Sabbath, and I will interpret its meaning. Uh, what a claim. I mean, he's either a blasphemer or he is God. Uh, and it must have goaded them to utter madness. He's, he says, you're not in charge of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of the Sabbath. He's directly claiming to be the Messiah and asserting his authority as God over the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are, had to be livid. And he's broken their Sabbath rules. He's embarrassed them by pointing out their inconsistency, both in their interpretation of the Old Testament and the practices of their priests. And now he's asserted his authority over the Sabbath. He's even claimed to be greater than their temple. The only person greater than the temple was God. So you can see why these two issues, one, his refusal to participate in their self-righteous rule-keeping, and two, his claim to be God, those two things became the focal points of their desire to destroy him. And he so he comes along and he says, come over here to my side if you're weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest. It's a time of mercy and meeting needs and serving God. And Jesus came and fulfilled the Sabbath, and that's why there's no need for that shadow anymore.
That's why there's no need for an illustration anymore because we've entered into the reality. That's why the New Testament says nothing about keeping the Sabbath. That's why Romans 14 says that some people want to observe certain days, which would certainly include the Sabbath, uh, and some don't. It's no big deal. If they want to, let them do it. If you don't want to, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 4 and Colossians 2, don't let anyone judge you in respect to whether or not you keep the Sabbath. Why? Because we have the reality. The shadow is gone. Christ fulfilled it. And Jesus rose on which day of the week? First day, right? First day of the week, which we know today is Sunday. Uh, the Sabbath was the seventh day. Jesus arose on the first day. And we see that the early church met together for worship and teaching on which day of the week? First day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 7, Luke records, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. That's what I call a long-winded preacher. I mean, don't ever complain when any of us here at Lakeside preach for 50 or 55 minutes. Okay? Apparently, Paul taught for several hours. So, and they also took up a collection of offerings at the services. We're instructed in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that on the first day of every week, each one of you is to set aside something, saving whatever he's prospered, so that no collections be made when I come. You see, they're collecting money to give to Paul to take to Jerusalem to assist the poor persecuted believers there. So Paul tells them that when they gathered for their Sunday church services, that was the time to take up that offering rather than waiting until he arrived. Uh, why did they meet on the first day of the week? Because that was the day that commemorated and celebrated the Lord's resurrection. Uh, and that's why we meet on Sundays. Every Sunday is a celebration of Resurrection Day. Uh, Sabbath keeping on Saturday, folks, is part of the Old Covenant. We're part of the New Covenant. And the day we meet is to be Sunday. Uh, but Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. We don't have any requirement to refrain from work on that day. Uh, I've worked for many years, I worked for many years at a job which required the, at times that I had to work on Sundays. And I think it's wonderful that companies like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, uh, where they're owned by Christians, choose to remain closed on Sundays in order to give their employees a day off for rest and to worship with their families, but that's not something they're compelled to do by Scripture. But I do think it demonstrates the priority that they place on caring for their employees, and that certainly honors the Lord. Uh, but I know that there are some Christians who think that they have to continue with the old covenant requirements of not working or shopping or traveling on Sundays. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court just sided with a postal worker who holds that position, but it's not a biblical requirement. Uh, however, as I said, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.16, no one is to judge you in respect to a Sabbath day. Uh, when it comes to those people who believe Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, uh, we're not to judge them, neither are they uh, to judge us for our view. Uh, we may try to instruct them in the teaching of the word when, when afforded the opportunity, but we're not to look down on them or demean them for their lack of understanding. Well, enough said on that issue. So, so far we've seen the incident on the Sabbath day that started this whole 
interaction, the indictment of Jesus by the Pharisees, the instruction he gave them as to why they were wrong. And now Jesus wraps up this matter with an illustration in verses 9 to 13. It says, In departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. Notice that Jesus didn't just give them instruction and then walk away. Uh, he confronts them directly. Apparently this whole conversation took place close to by their local synagogue. This may have been how it was that the Pharisees saw the disciples eating the heads of grain as they walked through the grain field. They were probably standing outside their synagogue, and there's this large field of grain across the street, perhaps, and they could see Jesus and the disciples coming through the field towards them. And as they arrived near the synagogue, these Pharisees stopped him and started accusing them of Sabbath violations. So after shutting them down with his divine interpretation of the Old Testament Sabbath law, Jesus stops talking with them, turns, and walks into their own synagogue. It's like walking directly into the lion's den. Uh, and his purpose for doing such is he's going to illustrate the whole lesson that he just gave them. Uh, he knows who's in that synagogue, the man with a paralyzed, withered hand. And the Pharisees knew it too, because they used that man's presence to challenge Jesus further. So verse 10, they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? Well, Matthew tells us, so that they might accuse him. They were completely unaffected by what Jesus had reminded them about God desiring compassion and not a sacrifice. Their only purpose in listening to anything Jesus said or watching anything he did was so that they could accuse him of violating the Sabbath. They're not looking for the truth for a way to, shall I say, dispose of this young upstart rabbi who dared to make a sacrilege of their revered traditions and supposedly blaspheme God with his claims. And so here is this man with a paralyzed hand. And they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You realize what this tells us? First it means that they understood and believed that Jesus could heal. They, they recognized it. Uh, but that didn't faze them at all. They knew that he could heal. That was indisputable. Where did they think he got the power for that? You'd think that they would recognize that his power was because he was God in flesh, but instead we'll find out later in this chapter that they thought he got it from Satan. It's sad, but the same miracles that convinced those who were humble of Jesus' divinity and messiahship confirmed the proud and self-righteous in their unbelief and rejection. So they said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, the reason they picked out a man with a paralyzed hand is because that's not a life and death issue. Remember, according to their rabbinical traditions, you could only give enough medical assistance on the Sabbath 
to keep someone from dying, but not to improve them. You couldn't make them well. Uh, if you, you were only allowed to barely keep them alive. So a guy with a paralyzed hand is not a life and death situation. He had had that paralyzed hand so long that it had withered. It had atrophied from the lack of use. So Jesus responds to them in very typical Jewish fashion by answering their question with a question. And he says, verse 11, he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Notice that this is just one sheep. This is not the entire flock. It's just, it's not the only sheep you have, it's one out of the entire flock. So he asks, if one of your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, which one of you guys will not pull it up out of that pit? Now you might wonder, but wouldn't that violate their Sabbath law? No, this is economics to them. <laughs> Bible scholar William Hendrickson comments on this and says, it is safe to infer, perhaps, that the question asked by Jesus at the moment indicates to us that there was a particular legislation permitting this, end quote. Now, we don't know what rabbinical sources it came from, but it must have been the that must have been the case because Jesus uses it as an illustration. In any case, Jesus' question is rhetorical and the answer is obvious. And assume any Jew, including a Pharisee, would find some way to rescue his sheep in such a situation. If there was a regulation permitting him to do it, he would certainly take advantage of it. If there wasn't a regulation, uh, he would find some way of circumventing or bending the law in order to save his sheep. Because either within the tradition or in spite of it, he would find a way to get that sheep out of that pit. And because the Pharisees don't argue with him about that point, it proves that the assumed answer is correct. And then he asks in verse 12, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Now that sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? But you see, while they would have denied that sheep were better than men, in reality, they treated their sheep as more important because the sheep represented an economic interest and gain to them. Other people were meaningless to them. They considered themselves better than others, and they couldn't buy and sell people like they could animals. So they treated their flocks and livestock with greater respect and kindness than other people. They contemptuously subjugated human life and welfare to religious tradition. So ethical conduct is the issue, and the Lord makes that clear at the end of verse 12. He summarizes and said, so then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And by the way, all the time he's talking, Mark and Luke tell us that he called this guy with a paralyzed hand up front and stood him right in front of the entire congregation. So he's got him standing there beside him. This is a very dramatic scene. Uh, the man's standing there. Jesus is confronting them, saying, you tell me, would you rescue a sheep? Would you rescue a man? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Well, what could they say? Uh, if they say, yes, it's lawful to do good, they're stuck. Because he's going to say, well, then it'd be good to heal this man, wouldn't it? 
If they say, no, it's not lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then what have they said? What other alternative is there? Evil. So he says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And they don't want to say anything, so they don't. I, I think there was sort of a chilling silence that prevailed. And Mark says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. They didn't care if that man was healed. They were trapped. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Was that a good thing to do for that man? Oh yeah, of course it was. If there was any meaning and purpose for the Sabbath, wouldn't it be to do good on the Sabbath? Sure it would. But to know to do good and to have the ability to do good, but not to do it, is to do evil. If ever there was a time for blessing, it was the Sabbath. As the Lord of the Sabbath, with authority to determine what the purpose of the Sabbath was to be, Jesus demonstrated that the Sabbath was the supreme day for doing good. Well, that was the illustration. Now we come finally, verse 14, to the insurrection. It says, but going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Neither the power of Jesus' argument nor the power of his miracles moved the Pharisees. They refused to be convinced. Jesus had indisputably connected the Sabbath with the heart of God. Benevolence, mercy, kindness, goodness, and compassion. Jesus' lesson is very clear. He says, my disciples and I broke a ceremonial law to meet our need. That's the heart of God. We broke a traditional law of not going more than so many feet to serve God. That's the heart of God because God wants mercy to be shown, not ritual. The only function that ceremony ever has is as an illustration of right attitude. And if you stop and corrupt the illustration and never get to the right attitude, you miss the whole purpose. But because they were so hung up on Jesus violating their Sabbath traditions, they went out and took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Mark 3.6 tells us that they went out and immediately, they didn't wait, immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. That's significant because the Herodians were the Pharisees' arch enemies. They were the antithesis of the Pharisees in every way. The fact that the Pharisees sought to join forces with them reveals how desperate they were to do away with Jesus. The religious legalist joined forces with the secular libertarians in order to destroy an enemy they considered to be even more dangerous than each other. you imagine that? They considered Jesus more dangerous than their own enemies. In commenting on this passage, the great pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse observed, quote, it is at this point in history that Israel's clock stopped, end quote. Why? Because Israel, God's chosen and specially blessed people, rejected her Messiah 
And God placed her on the shelf as a nation until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. Legalism, folks, is the implacable enemy of grace. Even the Mosaic Law, demanding as it was, was a reflection of God's grace, a means of guiding men towards Jesus Christ, the one and only true hope of coming to God. As Paul explains in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. If God's own law was only a shadow, how much less spiritual substance does human tradition have? If even divine law cannot save, how much less value is human tradition? Just as tradition, trust in tradition and good works is a barrier to salvation, it's also a barrier to faithful living after salvation. Let's look over at Galatians 3 for a moment. Galatians 3. Here Paul is asking the Galatians who are being misled by the legalistic Judaizers some questions. And, he, and, answer, and then he answers them. Look at verse 3, Galatians 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Drop down to verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, why are you trying to live the Christian life by a combination of faith and works? Now look at his answer in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For his written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We've been redeemed from the law's curse so that we might live by faith. So that leads me to ask you, why do you come here? Why do you, why do you come to worship? What's your purpose? Are you here because it's a functional ritualism? You're here because you think it's your duty? Oh, I must be at church every time the doors are open. I must not do this and I must not do that. Not because there's any moral requirement in the law but uh, in Scripture to do it, but simply because by living this kind of ascetic lifestyle, I'm pleasing God. Are you just cranking it out, having begun in the spirit, but now you're trying to be perfected in the flesh? Are you defining true spirituality in terms of a bunch of little things you do do or you don't do? Is your relationship to God a list of functions and rules and laws? Or do you realize that there are those are only things to assist us? And they can never stand in the way of meeting needs, serving God, and showing mercy because they violate the heart of God. You know, some Christians are so legalistic that they literally alienate other believers. Uh, we've had some of them show up at Lakeside a few times through the years, and we as elders have had to deal with them. And the things they're legalistic about aren't even things God talks about in Scripture. So ask yourself, where is your heart towards God? Uh, are you trapped in a bunch of rules, or do you realize that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden's light? 
I hope you aren't living your Christian wall keeping a bunch of rules because you think that doing so earns your brownie points with God. Yes, you have to learn how to give up some of your rights in order to better serve other believers without causing them to stumble. But at the same time, don't live your life like you're stuck in a box of rules and regulations that you have to keep in order to keep God happy with you. If you're a believer, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. You can never do anything. Listen carefully. You can never do anything that will make you purer in his sight. Because he already sees you through the perfect righteousness of his son that has been imputed to you. Yes, you want to live a life that is increasingly sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, but that doesn't mean you earn your sanctification by keeping rules. You are sanctified by the Spirit of God as you obey God's word, and his fruit will become more and more evident in your life. You will put off the old man and put on the new man in your spiritual walk, and it will happen naturally as the Spirit bears that fruit. There is a lightness and a freedom in knowing Christ and walking in the power of his Spirit. Even though we commit ourselves to obedience to him and submission to him, it's lightness, it's not heaviness. I hope you found that to be true. Well, that brings us to the end of this section. Any questions or comments? You better have some because we're only a few minutes. Yes, Norm. I have a couple questions, but I'll try to keep it concise. First of all, were the Puritans legalists? They could be, okay. just as we have people today. Beneficial. Yeah, but they, they, uh, there were some who were, there were some who were not. And the next. The question I had was the, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Right. What have they done or no. seen right. wrongly? The Seventh-day Adventists have, they are the error of the Galatians. They have mixed law and grace. Mm -hmm. they, they keep the old covenant, Sabbath day. That's not their big issue. The big issue is that they also go back and say, well, we have to do all these feasts in the Old Testament. We have to do all these old things, all these things, and it's all part of law-keeping. We must do these things along with faith in Christ. It's the era of the Galatians. It's a different gospel, according to Paul. you have anything to add to that, Frank? Simply put, it's just that they claim grace. You can basically take law and grace and try to mix it. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah. I, I met with a few before, and I've talked with them. And what they love to bring in that Old Testament law. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? They don't like Galatians. No, <laughs> they don't like the book of Galatians. So, so lastly, if, if we are resting in Christ for our salvation and we want to be obedient, do you find even true Christians stumble and get blurry? With sure, sure they do. That's why I talk about the fact that there are many Christians who, who think that by not doing a certain list of things, that they're somehow pleasing God more by that. Uh, I'll give you a, a good example. I grew up, Marcia and I both grew up in a very an independent Baptist church that had all kinds of rules. We don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with girls who do. Um, 
the uh, and uh, uh, there were a lot of kids who came out of there thinking that they were pleasing God by what they did or didn't do, you know, and uh, uh, and and for a lot of them, it became a salvation issue. They thought that by not doing these things, they were pleasing God and therefore they were saved. And they missed the point. They missed the point. Yes, Frank. I think when it comes to legalism, you have to get something straight because if, if we, we're not careful, and I've seen this happen many times, I'm sure Bruce, you have to, people fall into what we call antinomianism. Mm-hmm. In other words, they have so much liberty, they can go ahead and do anything. That's right. right. I, but I like to tell people, when it comes to legalism, it's not so much the action as much as it is the heart. Mm-hmm. The question is, is, okay, I'm going to do these things that God commands me. Why? Not because I'm going to get any good with God, but because I love him so much that I want to worship him through these actions. So it stems down to the heart. So if I'm going to obey because, like Bruce said, i got to do this, i got to do this, and I gain his favor, I gain his favor, that's legalism. But it doesn't mean we don't do those things that we're, we're commanded in Scripture. God changed my heart that I rejoice when I do this because I know it gives you praise. I want to worship you as I do this. That's yes. what Jesus taught us to, uh, to pray. Hallowed be your name, or hallow your name through this. Let people see that you are God as I obey. So what's your purpose of obedience? And I think that's very important because one of the issues, that I, I know when I was in ministry, one of the issues I faced was that whole liberty issue where, man, people took, it's people would go out and get drunk and say, that's okay, I'm free. Mm-hmm. I have liberty. That's making it better. Exactly. And that's why I think you have to be careful when it comes yeah. to legalism. I do believe it's, the issue is in the heart. Why do you do what you do? It's that's a great way to put it. I I'll give you a perfect example in my own life. I was uh, raised that for a Christian to drink any sort of alcoholic beverage, beer, wine, whatever, was a sin. So I never did. It was a sin. As I grew in the Lord, I came to realize from Scripture, Scripture doesn't forbid that. In fact, all it forbids is getting drunk and being under the influence of something other than the Spirit. Uh, So it doesn't forbid that. So then I had to make a decision. Will I do it or not? I chose not to do it, not because of something hanging out in the back of my mind or anything. No, I chose not to because I'm a pastor. And there's a lot of people out there who have an attitude that still believe Christians should not drink any sort of alcoholic beverage, and if they saw me doing it, they would stumble over that. Or, yeah. That same principle can be applied to parents and grandparents. No alcoholic ever took his first drink with the intention of becoming an alcoholic. Right. And so a parent or a grandparent should set the example, not that they can't drink the water, it's not a problem. Like you just gotta sometimes sacrifice a liberty like that. Yeah. So yeah, so I've I've chosen to sacrifice a liberty that I know I have for the sake of what others in the church witness for Christ. Witness for Christ. That's the only reason. What? So. What about health too? <laughs> well that's I'm not getting into all that. I'm talking about you know, scripture says I have a right to do it. I'm not gonna yeah, do it for that other reason. No, for the I, greater my dad was testimony on others. And I drank when I was younger. 
I don't care to go that way. Yeah. I, I'm glad to be clean. Yeah. So. Yeah, but no, I don't drink because I don't want to. Yeah. So I want to. I see another, heard another hand. Yeah. Yeah, you had you had the, the great you had Peter. As soon as the Judaizers showed up, what does Peter start doing? He quits eating with the Jews and starts or quits eating with the Gentiles and starts eating with the Jews again, uh, abiding by kosher foods and all the rest because you know. And Paul rebukes him to his face and <laughs> in front of everybody. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. All right, Frank. Close us with prayer. We don't have very far to go for church, but. Uh, <laughs> right. Our God and Father, we thank you that uh, in your love and your passion, compassion for us, you extended this grace through your Son Jesus Christ that has made us your children. You have chosen us, you have saved us, and we thank you that we don't have to earn anything. You give it freely because you are God and you are gracious and we praise you for it.